morning. Welcome to Christ City. If I haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for being here and hanging out with us this morning. I spent all day yesterday on the soccer field coaching up some uh, six, seven, uh, six and seven-year-olds. So I was yelling at them all day yesterday. All good things. But, uh, but the voice has gone a little bit uh, there, so, uh, so sorry for the, the uh, vocal quality, I guess, this morning. I do want to address a Facebook post that I made this past week. Uh, Tuesday uh, afternoon, discovered that someone had stolen my picture off the internet, created a fake, a, uh, fake email account in my name, and uh, emailed some of our group members, or at least one of our group members, asking for uh, money to be sent to this person to respond to some sort of benevolence need. And so it was all, uh, all stuff that was made up. We weren't the only church that they hit. They hit another church in the area as well as a couple churches around Hattiesburg. And uh, as we kind of did some more digging, it's something that's going on with churches across the nation. And so, uh, so we, uh, we just put that warning out there to you guys. Just be cautious if you get an email from us asking for specific money to respond. Uh, I think they were asking for some sort of like gift cards or something like that. But the, the email is close-ish to the church account. We, we put all that on the website so you can check out kind of the warning there. Uh, but let me say this, we want you to know that you can trust us uh, with, with giving, and so uh, if we do ask you to give to the church, it'll be kind of towards like our budget as a whole, or towards Discover Home, or Mission Cambodia, or if there are some different benevolence uh, issues such as that, we'll sit down face to face, you can see the need, and so we just want you to know that you can trust us. And to also be cautious, because I'm not stuck in a Filipino jail needing money to get out, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, to do any of that sort of stuff, so I'm fine, I'm here, it's all that good stuff. Stuff. So uh, just be cautious there. So in kind of the vein of stealing from pastors, uh, I'm stolen my opening illustration uh, uh, for, from the sermon. So this is from uh, Matt Chandler. He's pastor of Village Church in Dallas, fantastic preacher. I love listening to him. Uh, he said this probably 10 years ago, and it just stuck in my mind uh, ever since. And so I'm still, he talked about his wife in this way, but I'm going to use it in, in my setting. So if I was to say to my wife, April, you're beautiful, and your blonde hair makes me think of the most golden sunrise, and your blue eyes make me think of the deepest oceans, that is not going to go well for me because my wife has brown hair, all right? And so if I say she's blonde, it's not going to go good, right? And so it doesn't matter, uh, it doesn't matter if I got the, the blue eyes part, right? It's not going to go well for me because, again, she has brown hair and she kind of hates poetic romantic language, if that's even what that was. And, and so it, it, but saying that to her, complimenting her in that way, uh, what it does, it reveals that, that I don't um, love her, but it, rather I'm in love with what I'm projecting onto her. Right? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in love with what, I've, what image I've created in my head. I'm actually taking parts of other women, I guess, and meshing it and, and saying that that's what I love about you. And that's not her, right? That's not her. It's an image that I've created. That's an example of a theological term known as syncretism. Syncretism, it's the merging of two different ideologies, religions, worldviews, philosophies. It's bringing two of these together. And syncretism, in regards to the Christian faith, it happens when something outside the life and faith that God's called us to live, when something outside of that tries to merge with it in a way to where it fundamentally changes the whole. Uh, another way of describing it or defining syncretism is, is think of it as, as an additive that threatens to corrupt the whole of it. Uh, something coming in to kind of pollute or contaminate the whole. Just that term, syncretism, all right, just, just that term should raise the question for us, have we added anything to our faith that's not supposed to be there, right? Have, have we added something to the expression of our faith that does not align with the character of God, does not submit to his instructions for worship, or, or does not reflect the truth of God as revealed in Christ Jesus? 
Because how tragic would it be? How tragic would it be for the modern church to add something to the expressions of our faith that does not align with the will and the character and the attributes of God? And I, I think it happens way more than we would anticipate. I think it happens way more than, than, than we would anticipate. Like whenever you see a church that's engaged in a practice that, that leads people to express hatred or condemnation of, of a group, I, I think in that, uh, that, that leads people to, to kind of have that expression of character, that expression of hate, rather than calling people to the love and the redemptive work of Christ. Man, that's a church where an additive has come in, corrupted the worship, and led them to forsake the command of loving your neighbors yourself. Whenever you see a church that's engaged in a practice that maybe uh, leads people to feel like they have free license to live however they want to live, embrace whatever truth they claim for themselves, then, then that's a church where an additive has come in, corrupted its worship, and they've forsaken the command to call one another to holy and righteous living that really is a byproduct of growing in our love and devotion to the Lord. Those are churches that are trying to pass something off as worship that might even have some genuine expressions, some genuine, untrue, authentic expressions of worship in it, but an additive has come in that's, that's threatening to corrupt and contaminate the whole. In Exodus chapter 32, the Israelites, God's chosen people, God's chosen people, he's commanded to, to worship God and God alone, whom he's commanded to not make any graven image in the form of an idol. They've added something to their worship. They've added something to their worship, tried to pass it off as genuine, but it corrupts the whole thing. And God was not fooled in the least bit when he saw the additives. God's not fooled in the least bit when he saw the golden calf. God rejects their worship. And in Exodus 32, we have a reckoning of the nation of Israel for not worshiping God in a pure, genuine, unadulterated way as he commanded and so today we're, we're going to see this warning in the text, right? We're going to see the warning here uh, that, that we, we see the, the kind of the folly of the Israelites. And I, I pray that we would um, uh, see this warning and, and, and do the hard work of humbling ourselves and, and not thinking we're above them and, and maybe could fall prey to some of the similar temptations. And so we're going to see that warning. But also, I hope in this text we also see uh, how it points to hope. Because I do believe this text points us to the hope that we have in Jesus of how he's enabled us to worship and approach the throne of God in humility and in complete confidence that God will, in fact, accept our worship. It'll be pleasing and honoring to him. And so go to Exodus 32. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14. We're just going to grab the first 14 verses of this account here uh, because that'll be enough for, for, kinda, for our purposes this morning. To get everyone caught up on where we are in the narrative because we're kind of... Uh, since last August, we've been going through, it started in Genesis 1, and we're, we're kind of going through the text to get everyone caught up on, on the narrative. Uh, at this point, the Israelites have been, um, have been freed from Egypt. But when they were in Egypt, they served as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And the whole time they were enslaved, enslaved to Egypt for 400 years, you know, they, they didn't have God's word. They, they had not heard, had any of God's law given to them at that point. And they're surrounded by false gods and goddesses. They're surrounded by worship to all these different pagan gods, all these different pagan uh, goddesses. And so they've seen that their entire life. Like that's normal for them is, is, that, is seeing those expressions. They know that they're God's chosen people. They know that they're a follower of the one true God. But yet they're seeing all these expressions of worship to these false gods around them for 400 years. But now 
just before Exodus 32, just over a month, uh, just over a month, God has, has freed them miraculously from being enslaved. Um, you know, if you remember the story, when they were in Egypt, there was the ten plagues, huge divine manifestations of God's power that enables them to be freed. Then there's the parting of the Red Sea, a miracle that they get to experience that way. Then they see God uh, miraculously provide food and water for them in the desert. They're seeing one miracle of God after another. Then God gives to them the Ten Commandments and all the law that he wants them to use to guide the way that they live when they, when they get to the Promised Land, when they set up uh, themselves as a, and, and begin to build their nation. All of that has happened in the past days, weeks, like just over a month for Israel. A lot has happened in the past 40 days, right? I mean, they've seen just incredible, incre- one incredible miracle after another. And it's, it's still kind of continuing because in Exodus 32, they're stopped at Mount Sinai and the presence of the Lord rests on top of the mountain and they see Moses go up to meet with the Lord. Now, at this point, Moses has, has been with the people almost 24-7. He really doesn't take a lot of breaks away from the people. But now he's going up to meet with the Lord. He has met with the Lord before, and, and here he's meeting with the Lord again. Uh, but, but now days go by, weeks go by, and the people begin to worry. Is he going to come back? The people begin to worry. Is, is, he, is he going to, to come back to us? They get impatient. They lose sight of how God has called them to live. They lose sight of how God has called them to worship. And look at the text. Verse, uh, chapter 32, verse 1 is where we're coming in. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. All the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So remember this, I mean, they've just received the Ten Commandments, right? Worship, uh, you shall have no other gods before the one true God. Do not cast for yourself any graven image and worship it. And 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 when they received the Ten Commandments, they they promised the Lord they would do all that he required, all that he commanded. Yet Moses leaves, a few days go by, and now they're unsure. They're just, they're, they're unsure in how to express their worship. And they revert, they go back to what they had known from the pagan culture they had been surrounded by. Even after God had shown that these were false gods, that these were sinful practices. They had seen all these incredible powers of God work, move all these miracles. And then the moment it just gets a little bit unsure, the moment Moses is kind of out of sight, out of mind, the moment they like have to live this out for themselves a little bit, they, they just, they, they go back to an old way. They go back to what they were familiar with. And before we could throw stones of judgment in, in that regard, I mean... Maybe we've done the same sometimes. Like we know this is what God's calling us to do, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to make us stretch a little bit. We're unsure. And so we just go back to what's familiar. We just go back to what's comfortable. We just go back to what's seen rather than saying, okay, this is where God's calling me. This is where God's leading me. This is where I need to go. But yet so often we can feel this pull to go back to what's familiar. And, and they do. And so they go back to Aaron and they're like, you make us gods. Aaron hears it gets the gold, gets the earrings, and gives to them this golden calf. 
You know, this is a story that we're familiar with, whether you're grown up in church or not. You, did, you maybe heard some cultural uh, uh, allusions to this story or not uh, once before. And we're so familiar with it, we almost don't ask the obvious questions. Um, and one obvious question would be, why a young calf? Like, why a young bull? Like, why not a platypus <laughs> or something like that, right? Like, why not whatever animal? I don't know platypus. There you go. I mean, it'd be kind of anyways. So, uh, like, why, uh, we, don't, we don't ask those questions. Well, the, one of the reasons why Aaron does the, the young, the, the young uh, calf is because they're pulling from the culture around them. Um, and it's again, it's pulling from what's familiar. They had seen Egyptian, they'd seen idols built in worship of an Egyptian god, Apis, who was uh, depicted as a bull, known for strength, known for fertility. And so Aaron is just giving to them what they are familiar with. And here's the blending. All right, this is, this is the syncretism happening. Once more, he, he's not done there because once the calf is fashioned for them, he then says, well, let's, well, let's have a festival to the Lord, right? Let's, let's have burnt offerings, fellowship offerings to the Lord. Both of these were, were right elements in worship to God that he commands of his people to have towards him, yet now they're having it in front of the golden calf as they're trying to have the festival to the Lord. They're taking right and true worship elements and mixing it with the graven image, and it's defiling the lot of it. It's defiling the whole thing. It's corrupting the expression. Now, at this point, and I can see it on some of your faces right now, you might be asking the question, David, is this really syncretism? Okay, is this, is this, are they trying to worship the one true God, but they're doing it in a false way? Or have they just made for themselves complete new gods altogether? Or, or are they taking uh, what God has done and now ascribing it to the false god Apis? And so, like, is, uh, what, is this really what's happening? And my answer to all those questions is Yes. That's not a cop-out, but I think all those things are happening here because you have to account for the variety of the people within the Israelite nation. In chapter 33, or even uh, if you continue to read, there are some that, that really rejected all of this. They remained faithful to the one true God and knew that they didn't need, need to do this. And they really come to the forefront in that chapter. And so there's people within Israel that, that don't even give into this worship, but yet all the community is going to be held accountable for this action. And so, yes, there'd be people within the nation of Israel that, um, that, that wanted to go back to the false gods of Egypt. And so when, you know, this, this sculpture shows up, they're like, yes, finally back to what we know. And, and still there'd be those that, that saw these powerful acts of God, saw him work, saw him move, still continued to see him move, but they, they just needed to express the faith of the way that they had, had always known. So they needed something tactile. They needed something tangible. They needed something that they could look at in the form of a calf, even though it was directly against the ways of the Lord. Syncretism corrupts the whole, and the Lord rejects it. Look at God's response, verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. I mean, at that point, you know, Moses is like, oh no. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's the whole, you know, mom and dad, when they get upset and it's like, your son is acting up. <laughs> it's like, that kind because of, God doesn't call them my people anymore. Did you catch that? Maybe I should have said that first. The joke would have landed better. You know, God, God, God doesn't say my people. He's like, you're, it's, it's your people. He's, he's given this blame over now, now to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, Israel, whom you brought up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Don't really have to wonder how God feels. 
right? Like, I mean, this is a, a, a sobering judgment that he pronounces. This is against what I've commanded. This is against what I've commanded. These people are stiff-necked, they're, stiff-necked, they're stubborn, they're basically unteachable. They're refusing to recognize who I am, what I've done, or worship me accordingly. And, and, and all throughout it, you know, it's, it's your people, your people, not referencing them as, as my people anymore. And then he ends with this, I'm going to destroy them all, and I'm going to start again with you, Moses. And that's just confusing it's grim and it's scary, but it's also confusing because this goes directly against all that God had previously spoken and, and, and revealed. If he does this, if he, if he wipes them off the face of the earth, he's going to be breaking his promise to Abraham. He's going to be breaking his promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation, to bless the whole world through it. And, and he's going to be breaking his promise to Israel. And so how do we, how do we reconcile this, right? How do we, how do we write this? All right, so whenever, this is just is a good exercise for us to go through. Whenever you hit a, a passage of, of text that is, has maybe raises more questions than you've got answers to, and you're like, I don't know how this jives. I don't know how this makes sense with this other passage. I don't know how this makes sense of what I know about the Lord. Uh, it's good to just go back and, and go to the fundamentals, go back to the basics, and just do some head work. And so a great place to start, what do, what do we know about God? How has he revealed himself? Okay, I know that God is loving. I know that God is gracious. I know God is holy. I know God is righteous. I know God is faithful to his word. He does not go back on his word. He's honored every promise he has ever made. I know God is also immutable. We talked about that a couple months ago, that he is unchanging in his character and his design and his plans. And so if I knew all these things about the Lord, then that might bring even more questions to come out. So, but, then, but then at the same time, okay, who's he having the, question, the conversation with? He's having it with Moses. Okay, maybe this is a conversation from Moses. And, and perhaps God is doing something in the heart and life of Moses. And so what you see, okay, no, I, go, I know God's faithful, he's immutable. And so with giving this, presenting this situation to Moses, it's an invitation to Moses to intercede on behalf of the Israelites. This is God presenting to Moses a time for Moses to just realize how much he really cares about the, about the nation of Israel. Because when God says, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth, Moses could be like, about time. They've griped against me. They've been complaining against me. Like, light them up. I'll get the popcorn and watch the fireworks. Like, that, that could have been how he replies in the moment. And, 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 and that, that could have been it. And, he, and, and, if, and if that's how he responded, he says, yes, make me the patriarch of the next people. If that's how he responds, then that reveals how he feels about God's people. And so here is an opportunity for him to to understand even himself how much he's devoted to the people of Israel. And, and so look at how Moses replies. Verse 11, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So Moses accepts the invitation to speak and act on behalf of Israel, and he intercedes for them. And if you notice his response to the Lord, it is anchored and it is dependent upon God's already pronounced declarations and spoken word. Moses trusts that they are still God's people because God chose for them to be his people. 
So he's, he's like, you've made them your people, they are still your people. Moses trusts that God still wants to use his people to show the entire world that the God of the Israelites is the one true God. And that won't happen if God wipes them off the face of the earth and the Egyptians can be like, see, the God of the Israelites isn't the one true God. They, could, they could mock him if this destruction happened. And so Moses knows that, that that's, that's not uh, the intent, that's not the design here. Moses also trusts that God wants to honor and uphold the promises that he makes to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Israel. And so he speaks, really kind of prays all this back to God, gives all this back to God. And in so doing, Moses learns just how devoted he is to Israel. Because this won't be the last time he, 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 you know, the Israelites mess up. And Moses finds himself um, trying to figure out how to respond to their sinful ways in, in a way that's both holy and, and that exemplifies both the holiness and the righteousness of God, but also the grace and the mercy of God as well. And so um, in this, he intercedes on behalf of the Israelites, and we see that God relents. Um, God, uh, if you were to keep reading in the chapters, you would see that there were consequences for their sin, but God uh, does choose not to wipe them off the face of the earth, and, and he does come back, um, or not come back, he continues uh, to, to lead his people into the promised land. And it's the... It's the account of the golden calf we abbreviate a little bit there's some humorous parts about Aaron when he had to answer Moses for making the golden calf he's like I threw the gold in this calf came out and so uh, it's like I don't know about that Moses I don't know about that Aaron um but you know at the end of 14 it's it's just a it's just a it's kind of a grim text to me it's a sober text because you know, you can be judgmental of the Israelites, like how could they go back so fast? But then you, know, you look at your own heart and see how fast um, we can forget what God has done. See how fast we can go back to what's routine, to what's, what, uh, what's normal for us. And you can see how fast, too, that we can pull elements of culture, elements of other things around and try to mesh it. And we know it just doesn't jive, but we try to do it anyways. And so if we, if we stop here, we could feel a bit paralyzed. So how do we move forward? How do I move forward with this? How can we ensure that we don't make the same mistake that they made? And I think this text, specifically, I think Moses helps us with this as well. And the way that, that Moses interceded on behalf of the Israelites, he points us to Christ who intercedes on our behalf. On the night of his, ar his arrest, just before his crucifixion, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he's trying to comfort them. They all know that he's pretty much about to die. They, they're back in Jerusalem. They know the... the um, the hit basically is out for Jesus, wanting to arrest, wanting to have him, wanting to have him uh, crucified. And so I know this is their, their last few times together. And Jesus goes to comfort him, comfort his disciples. He says, okay, I'm going to my father's house and I'm going to prepare a place for you. So like this isn't going to end in death. This isn't going to end in defeat. This is going to end in victory. I'm going to my father's house. And then if I'm going there, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you as well. And so while that's encouraging, right, that there's, he's preparing a place in his father's house. The disciples, they, they hear that. And, and, and Jesus says, you know the way to my father's house. They hear that and they're like, okay, but we really don't. We really don't know what your father's house is. We really don't know the way to your father's house. And, and so they, they ask that question of Jesus. And Jesus replies in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. 
I said, like, we don't know the way, show us the way to your father's house. And Christ responds with this verse, right? Maybe you've heard it before. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the one who intercedes for us. He's the one that makes this happen for us because it's through him where we have forgiveness of sin, salvation for our soul, and we're welcomed into the family of God. Hebrews 7.25 says of Christ, therefore, if he is, uh, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus says, it's through me that you will come to the Father. Saying it's, it's wide open, right? It's a wide, like that's anybody can come to the Father through Christ. It's a, 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 a uplifting promise. It's, it's a, a hopeful promise. It's a promise of deliverance. It's a promise of life. And as you can kind of hear all that joy in that, he speaks this truth. And yet Philip replies, uh, if you'll show us the Father, that'll be good enough. Like, you know, if you'll show us the Father, that, that will be enough for us. He's not asking for a golden calf, but he still wants to see something. He still, he still wants to, to be able to see something to help him in his faith. And look at how Christ responds in verse 9. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Philip says, if you'll show us the Father, that'll be enough. And Jesus replies, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and to me, that statement, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that statement helps us all the way back with our original problem of syncretism. How do we know that we're worshiping God and God alone with no additives that would corrupt our faith or, or the, corrupt the expression of it? Or are we looking to Christ and Christ alone? Because we've seen him, we've seen the Father. He and his Father are one. And he is the one who's revealed God's character, God's nature, God's will. He's revealed all of that because he is God in the flesh. And so are we looking to God's word to see how Christ lived, to see how he loved, to see how he served, to see how he worshiped his Father and say, okay, if that's the path that he blazed, if that's the, the path that he marked out, I'm going to follow him because he is my rabbi and I'm the disciple. I'm going to follow him because he is the master and I'm the apprentice. I'm going to follow him because I'm a disciple of Christ. And if this is the way that he lived, that's going to help me know how I too can express my worship in a pure, unadulterated fashion where I can express my life of faith and worship in a genuine way with no outside additives. Because, I mean, Christ gives us a promise here again. If we look to Jesus, believe in Jesus, what's going to happen? We're going to be doing the works of Jesus. And when we do the works of Jesus, man, we're expressing our faith we're expressing our worship in a way that God blesses and in a way that God receives with favor. And so I, I think if we've seen Christ, we've seen the Father, helps us with, our, helps us with that temptation and the pull of syncretism. And so the, the reason I think it does, and really kind of the action step in light of that, what do we do in, in light of that, it would be this. The takeaway is to ask God, pray to God, that he would first help us know him. Maybe here and you don't know him. That you would ask God, God, help me to know Christ. Help me to know your son. Second, God, help me to grow in my knowledge of you. 
Help me to grow in my knowledge of Christ. Like epistle after epistle in the New Testament, letter after letter in the New Testament, you can hear different apostles saying, I'm writing that you might grow in your knowledge of Christ. I'm writing that you might mature in the faith. Because the more we grow in the knowledge of Christ, the more we're able to learn more of who God is and, and what he's done and how he's expressed his love. And, and we're able to learn more of his values and his virtues and his, and his ethics and know how to live by them. And then we're expressing our faith in a genuine way. It's like, you know, when I, when I grow in my knowledge of, of April, right? Like, as soon as I met her, I knew she didn't have blonde hair, right? <laughs> Not that dumb. So I, I saw that she has brown hair and blue eyes. But as I continue to know her, as I, as I continue to, to uh, do life with her, then I, I learn more and more and more of what it is that causes her joy, what it is that, that brings her happiness, what it is that stirs a righteous anger in her. Uh, and when I, when I learn those things about her, and, and get this, it's the same way in reverse. The more she learns me, the more she uh, she and I do life together. She learns those things about me, and that's how, you know, that's how a marriage deepens, right? That's why you never stop learning your spouse. You never stop growing in your knowledge of your spouse. It's the same way with our relationship to the Lord. The, the, the more we grow in our knowledge of him, that helps us understand, okay, this is what causes him joy. This is what causes him uh, happiness. This is what um, stirs his righteous anger. And so when we learn these things of him, it's okay, God, help me to see that and to know that. And this way I can articulate my worship to you in a more specific way. I can also articulate my worship of you uh, in a way that's accurate and true, uh, where I'm not ascribing things to you that I'm projecting onto you, but I'm worshiping you as you have revealed yourself to me. You know, when, when we grow, the deeper we connect them, the more we see them, the more we'll be able to see how we've allowed different things to pollute or contaminate our worship of him. Whether it's sin and outright rebellion, or, or whether it's deliberate syncretism with the, with the culture around us, or just ignorance of his word and, and, and ignorance of his ways and of his calling. And so it's God, help me to first know you, and two, help me to grow in my knowledge of Christ. And so uh, let me say this, uh, uh, the takeaway, how do you grow in your knowledge of Christ? This is an unashamed um, challenge to you and to me. We need to know our doctrine. We need to know our doctrine and our theology. Um, Rich had this great correction in between first service and second service. He was like, Hederman, we all live by doctrine. We just need to make sure that we know what doctrine we're living by, right? Whether you realize it or not, your life is guided by doctrine. It is guided by philosophy. And so it's God, help me to, help me to see that if I'm allowing my life to be guided by, guided by doctrine that is not of you. We've said it before at Grace City, your life reveals your doctrine. Okay, so this is know our doctrine, know our theology, and not be scared of those terms, all right? Those are, those are good things. I think sometimes those can be um, somehow, um, like if people are, are really, if, uh, sometimes, it's weird, maybe I shouldn't even go there, but sometimes I feel like I can, you can almost hear people being critical of theology. Now, I think of theology and doctrine as like a trellis that upholds the, 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 the vine, right, to help fruit happen. The, the more we dig deeper in our theology and our doctrine, just the more we're growing in our knowledge of Christ. At the same time, and maybe this is where the, the criticism comes, there can be folks that just do nothing but study, nothing but doctrine, nothing but theology, and yet there's no uh, fruit of the Spirit in their life. And so here's the deal. It's not just studying. It's not just a collection of facts because you don't know something until you practice it. Right? We, we study it and we put it into practice. So like we've talked about this before, we have a deeper understanding and knowledge of the grace we've been given in Christ when we have to give grace to someone who has cut us to the Man, when, when we take that step, when we take that action, now we understand a bit more about Christ's love and the grace that he has poured out into our life. 
We grow in our knowledge of Jesus, not just by study, although that is a significant portion of it, but also by doing the work and practicing the faith as well. And when we grow in our knowledge of Christ, we see him more clearly, we know God more deeply, and we worship him for who he is and what he's done and not what we've projected onto him. So that's my prayer for you, for me, for Grace City, all right, that, that we would be a place, that we would be a place where we would help one another grow in our knowledge of Christ so that we can avoid and reject anything that would be added into our faith and distort it from what it was meant to be. My prayer is that Sunday after Sunday, we would be a place where we would help one another look to God's word, see the hope of Christ, and that God's people would respond in pure, genuine, authentic worship, and then express that worship with our lives committed to him and to the redeeming work that we see him.